from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Carol Handy on August 26, 2019. Carol is a published author and poet. She also served as writer and editor for the Baha'i International News Service from 1989 to 1990. Carol published the children's book Dragons of Rizvania in the 1980s, which I remember reading to my children 30 years ago. She's recently published an historical novel called Journey of Sorrow, Journey of Hope. She's also recently released a collection of poetically written narratives inspired by biblical scripture called From the Land of the Living that examine five seminal moments in the life of Christ and the effect the events produced on both those who saw him for who he was as well as those who only saw a human event. This work's been popular for reading aloud at Lenten program events. I started the interview by asking Carol where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. To begin with, I grew up a long time ago, figuring I'm 90 years old. I grew up in uh, Michigan, in southwestern Michigan, and so I'm a Great Lake child. My parents were not interested in religion at all. They were 1920s. My mother was a flapper in the 1920s. So they were not interested in religion and had no interest in seeing that I received any. But for some reason or other, I felt a lack of it. I would go out into the woods and talk with whatever I understood. It seemed there was a presence there that I could talk to, and I used to talk to that a lot. Later on, I found out about Sunday school and talked them into letting me go to the Congregational Church Sunday School. So I grew up in the Congregational Church and Ultimately, my parents decided it might be a good idea, so they ended up going there, too. It was a liberal church for those days. There was not much talk of sin and hellfire. It was more of a socially involved church that Harry Emerson Fosdick was the great social minister of the day, and he influenced our congregation then. We were more concerned with social issues than we were with personal salvation and that kind of thing. So I grew up without really much interest in any of that stuff. As a young woman, I had a very strong, um, what I guess would be called a born-again experience, became a very serious some years, but lost faith in that because I could see that the Christian community wasn't really living up to the things that professed to believe. So that troubled me. I began to look elsewhere. During that period of search, discovered the Baha'i faith. After studying it for a year, I became a Baha'i. I first ran into the faith when I was about 10, I think, 10 or 11 years old. I had some homework I had to do, and I got out our encyclopedia, and the subject that I needed was under the B volume. So I, I went into there and ran across the word Bob, B-A-B, and I thought that was certainly an interesting word. And there was a picture there of, of Abdu'l-Bahá and an article explaining 
about Baha'u'llah, who was the founder of the Baha'i faith, and how he was captured by religious fanatics in, in Iran, where he lived, and put into prison. There was an article explaining how, in his own words, how he descended into the prison and it was filled with filth and thieves and murderers and one thing and another, and that it smelled terrible, and that he was there for some time. And that while he was there, he had this experience and recognized that he was the the man that the announcer, the John the Baptist figure, if you will, that was announcing the coming of one who would lead us into the future. I remember reading it, and the article went on to say he claimed to be the return of Christ. And I thought, well, you know, anybody could make that claim. It doesn't have to mean anything. I was about to just turn away and not think about it anymore when it occurred to me that if that were so, that if he was the return of Christ, and I I just blew it off, there might come a day when I was sorry that that happened, that I might live to regret that. So I thought, well, if he is who he says he is, I will hear about it again. If he's not, he's a fake, it will go away, it will die, because untrue things eventually die away. And where I got the wisdom for that at the age of 10, I don't know. I think it was been some sort of gift at the moment. I put it away and forget about it, absolutely, because to begin with, 10-year-old children don't remember very much on that serious kind of stuff. You know, they move from one, one interest to another at the drop of a hat. So I forgot about it. Years went by, and it wasn't until I was 30-some years old that I ran across the faith again an elderly man in our community gave a book called Paris Talks to a friend of mine. And I looked at the book and thought, well, it's it's interesting stuff, but mostly it's just good common sense. I began to feel that the church was not doing its job. I got concerned about that. It seemed to me it was more interested in, in what was going on inside the institution and whether the silver set was being resilvered, or whether there was fresh carpeting in the parlor and that kind of thing. You see, much more interested in the building than they did in the teachings. And I, I thought this was pretty tiresome, and it's kind of a waste of time. I don't think I want to be interested in this anymore. And I began to to look around to see if there wasn't something. Somebody suggested that I go to see a woman in town who had a different way of looking at things, and I went over to talk with her. She introduced me to the Baha'i faith. I studied it for over a year before I was convinced of the truth of it, because I had at one point been a very firm Christian, but decided that this would would be right for me after all. When I realized that all of the people that I had always worried about, I worried because the idea that only Christianity was the approved route for heaven or for salvation, that that was the only approved route, then what was to happen to all of the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Jews and what have you, who all of whom I, many of whom I had met and realized were very, very lovely people and very good people and very, very seriously virtuous people. Something about that just didn't ring true for me. When I read that the Baha'i faith was accepting of from wherever you came, it made sense to me because my experience of God had been that he accepts us in whatever state we come. And so I, I felt that this was the correct thing.
this was right, that in my concern for the people of the world, that anybody who sincerely sought to find the right path was my brother or sister in the faith that I did not, they didn't have to wear the same label that I wore. And I think that was one of the great convincing arguments or experiences of, of my search. But like most searching of that sort of thing is many faceted. There were other, there were other facets that occurred that, that led me eventually to, to say, yes, this is the way for me. So what year was it that you became a Baha'i, Carol? 1966. I'm speaking with Carol Handy, published poet and author, who served as the writer and editor for the Baha'i International News Service from 1989 to 1990. Carol, what is the Baha'i International News Service? Well, it's kind of an in-house associated press. It's a, a collective for all of the Baha'i news in the Baha'i faith worldwide that would all come into the World Center, then my job would be to cull through that, find all of the information that would be interesting. So we'd get, we'd get news from, let's say, Germany would come in, and it might be interesting to Baha'is in the United States or in England, in China or someplace. And so those would be written up in a publication that would then go out again to all of, all of the Baha'i communities around the world. So they could publish it for their readers, like the Associated Press, but it was just for, for Baha'is. It was a source, um, a news source for those folks. And for me, it was an especially exciting thing because I happened to be there at the time that the Berlin Wall fell and that Poland made their stand for freedom and the time that the uh, USSR collapsed. And it was very exciting because there were Baha'i communities in the in Moscow and in Kiev and in other places in in Russia, for instance, that had been underground for the entire seventy years, and they they called it the silence during the period of the silence. They couldn't meet; they would get together socially, but they couldn't. They were not allowed to meet as a religious group, so they. They, so they were kept they kept silent, but they kept in touch with one another. So when this period was over and they were set free to be who they were, they immediately contacted the World Center and said, can we reorganize our, we want to reorganize our communities. Are we free to do that? They said, absolutely. So, so that was a very exciting time. These, these notations would come in every few days we're, we're reorganizing our group in Kiev, we're reorganizing our group in, in Moscow. We've found that we have 27 people who are still firm in the faith after 70 years. You know, very small little communities, but very, very happy to be back together and functioning again. So I'm speaking with Carol Handy, published poet and author who has served as writer-editor for the Baha'i International News Service from 1989 to 1990. And Carol, you, in the 1980s, you wrote a children's book, Dragons of Rizvania. Yes, yes. What inspired you to write that book? No question what inspired it. There was a young boy, about four years old, whose parents were getting a divorce. And it was a rather difficult time for him because there was a lot of 
unpleasantness going on in his household. And he was kind of frightened of the whole thing, naturally. And I was having lunch one day with him and his father, and we were talking about things. And all of a sudden, he looked up at me and he said, Handy? And I said, Yes, Jeremiah, what is it? He said, I wish I had a book about dragons. And I said, you do? He said, yes. I said, he said, when I was at Korea, because he was, a, was an adopted Korean child, he said, when I was at Korea, I heard a story about dragons. And I said, you did? He said, yes, they're very fierce. And I said, that's what I understand. He said, I just wish I had a book about dragons. And I thought to myself, I think he's facing some dragons in his life. And he doesn't quite know what to do about them. And he needs a book to help him figure out how to deal with dragons. So I thought, I will get him a book about dragons. So I went looking in bookstores and I couldn't find anything that I thought would work to help him overcome his fear of the dragons in his life. So I thought, well, I guess the answer then is to, is to write him a story about dragons. So that's what I did. So who is the illustrator for the book? Her name was Louise Taylor, and she's since passed away, killed very tragically in an automobile accident one icy evening. She'd taken special studies in uh, Oriental art, and so I thought she'd be a good choice to draw Oriental animals, namely dragons, and she was delighted to do it. What's the basic plot of the storybook? There's a young prince. He's being groomed for his future, and his parents tell him that it's time for him to go on his quest. And so he's, he's going to go. They said, we've had, a, we've had a report that there are dragons in a, in a certain area in the country, and you need to go and investigate this situation. So the prince decides that he will take sword, and he will find these dragons, and he will destroy them. And when he gets there, he discovers that the dragons are anger and fear and shame and he doesn't quite know what to do about that because he can't defeat them he fights all afternoon with them and he's he's unable to defeat them they finally wear him down to where he just can't fight anymore and he thinks oh dear i've lost this battle and my i haven't completed my quest and my parents will be ashamed of me and I'll never be able to be a good king if I can't be a proper prince. And he's having a terrible time with this. And, and then all of a sudden the dragons say to him, well, we think you did a good job. We think, we think you, you waged a fine fight. And uh, don't you understand that, that, these, that we're, parts of, we're parts of yourself and you can't kill us. We're parts of you. You can't kill us. But we have a job to do for you. And then they proceed to point out to him what they're for, why we have these parts of ourselves that we sometimes don't like, and that they have value. Fear, for instance, warns us when doing something might be dangerous to us. And anger sometimes helps us to, to right some of the wrongs that are in the world. And shame is, lets us know that we wander away from the, the path that we want to be on and it's time to get back on the true path. And so they're like messengers. And as long as we can exercise control over ourselves, these remain valuable parts of us. It's only when they get away from us 
and they begin to run our lives, that then we find that they're not valuable. And then he, he finds other parts of himself. Altogether, he finds nine different parts of himself that he has to integrate into his personality. And he does this, and, and I guess he becomes a fine king. I don't know. That's the story. And children seem to have enjoyed it a great deal. Their parents, when they've grown up, they've bought it for their own children. And I now have some grandchildren that are grandchildren of the original purchasers. So I think that's kind of fun. Is there an excerpt you want to read from Dragons of Rizvania? Let me see. Well, here, how about this? He's on his third mission now. He's riding through the woods on his horse. He has a horse named Kupid. He's riding along in the province of Maya in the south, nearly tropical. Maya was a place of palm trees, long sandy beaches and salt air. And of course, it was the favorite vacation spot of Paulus Virenia. Inland there were labyrinths and the bayous hidden beneath moss-hung cypress trees that stretched for miles into dark, uncharted places. The swamps were largely unexplored and unexploited, though they were on its outer fringes, birds and wildlife stations and academic institutions for wildlife studies. The day before his journey was to begin, he rode through the woods and out again along a ridge of high ground to a deep grassy bowl where asparagus and strawberries grew even this early in the season. He grinned as he thought his thinking had been correct. The old man with the mushroom sack looked up and waved and waited. Mojave and be happy, Prince Khan, he said, sitting down his strawberry pail. Khan jumped down and hugged the old man. Old father, he said, his voice, his face bright with affection. Happiness to you. Look at you, marveled the old man. You've grown taller than I by half a head. Oh, my prince, how are you? Khan imitated the old man's voice and said, oh, well, I'm fine as always, and they laughed. But I've come to ask you for a favor. I'm off to Maya to see if I can help. It seems I have some dragons there. I'd heard rumors to that effect, responded the old man. So it's true, eh? What do you know of them? All that seems to be known is that they're not large. The old man nodded with, what provisions are you taking? None, replied the youth. Nothing I've chosen yet has been of any use to me. I shall go and either master them or suffer them as best I can. Well, you're nothing if not courageous, said the old man. But you are always that. You came to ask a favor, you said. Surely you must know, Khan, that I would do anything for you. I do know, and I thank you. Remember when I had returned from Mamota and was puzzled, because though I could master the dragons or they could master me, neither of us could destroy the other? Yes, I remember that very well. You gave me a hint. You said that the reason they could not destroy me had something to do with the justice and mercy of God. I did. Obviously, there is justice in that arrangement, but I'm still unclear as to the significance of it. I noticed it again at the dragons of Pyra. They could sap my strength or I could submit and sap theirs. But again, neither of us could destroy the other. It seems to me that if I'm to do battle unarmed, I will at least need wisdom for a weapon. You have so much, old father, Ken said, his eyes glowing with love for the old man. Will you give a little of it to me? I cannot give you wisdom. I can give you only knowledge. And if you have wit, you will forge from them a sword of wisdom for yourself. Here is the knowledge I give you. None of the dragons has been able to destroy you because due to the justice and mercy of God, his creation is perfect and good. There is nothing evil in it. Know this, Prince Khan, nothing God has created 
can destroy you. Nothing? Nothing. Old Father, he said after a pause, thank you. I must be on my way now, but I shall come as soon as I return and let you know how it went. So I'm speaking with Carol Handy, published poet and author who served as writer-editor for the Baha'i International News Service from 1989 to 1990. And we were talking about a children's book that she authored in the 1980s called Dragons of Rizvania, and she just read an excerpt. Carol, let's get into your latest work, which is called Journey of Sorrow, Journey of Hope, which is a historical novel set in Persia, Russia, Rome, and Paris in the late 19th and early 20th century. First of all, what inspired you to write this book, and what is this book about? The book is about the letters to the kings and rulers of the day, the day being the late 1800s, early 1900s, just prior to the First World War. Baha'u'llah, who is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, wrote to the kings and rulers that would be Europe, Middle East, and the United States, oddly enough. In 1868 and 69, he wrote these letters to them, announcing his mission, which was to unite the world and show us the roadway to peace, to world peace. And he did this by, by writing letters to each of the kings and rulers. That would be specifically the Shah of Iran, the Sultan of Turkey, Napoleon III of France, not Napoleon Bonaparte, but his nephew, Napoleon III, Queen Victoria in England, Tsar Alexander II of Russia, and Pope Pius IX. The Sultan of Turkey was also the Caliph of Islam. And he wrote these letters telling them what they must do in order to ensure peace and in order for people to be happy and contented in the world. And for each one of them, he, he was very careful to point out both the personal problems that they had, the personal failings, and also the gifts, the natural gifts that they had. By doing so, he, he showed them that he was very aware of who they were and what their lives were like, that he was not writing into the dark. He knew exactly who these people were and how they functioned, and warned them of the things that they might need to look out for. For instance, uh, Napoleon III warned him about his ambitions to form a dynasty. He wanted to form a Napoleonic dynasty that would go on for generations, and this was obviously not the right thing to do for France, because France had had devoted a republic. They didn't want a dynasty. They wanted a republic. And we're better off with that. So he warned him that he needed to be careful of his ambitions and that what he needed to do was to think about his, to serve his people. Napoleon made fun of the whole thing. He threw the, threw the letter over his shoulder, said, if this, this man is a god, I'm two gods. The result of his paying no attention to the letter, he did all of the things that that Baha'u'llah had warned him about and lost his kingdom. And he was also warned of that. He was told that if he didn't follow this advice, that he would lose his kingdom. And he did. He lost it from Bismarck, who was a master at 
war making. He wrote to Pius IX and explained to him that he needed to leave the Vatican, get out into the countryside and meet the people and talk to them and not be so authoritative and be, to be less concerned with the wealth of the church. But Pius was, Pius was an excellent man and a marvelous pope in many respects. But his fatal mistake was that he, he became more concerned in his old age with the, the wealth of the church than the spiritual health of the people. And the result of it was that he lost, lost pretty much lost his power. People were no longer interested in what he said. They, they were not obedient anymore. And to combat this, the Vatican was held and the Pope was proclaimed infallible in matters of faith and morals. And, and this was intended, of course, to, re, to restore his power over the, over the faithful. But it, it really hasn't worked very well. And they, they still don't. If, if they don't want to obey the Pope, they don't. <laughs> it didn't work. And it, worse than that, it put him in a bind because, because having, having made this pronouncement, now the church is in the position that if something is no longer valid, there's no way to get rid of it as doctrine. It, they're stuck with doctrine because of this rule of infallibility. And they've, they've had a lot of trouble over trying to, trying to live with it. And it's, it's a great problem to the church even today. So Pius IX died the most hated pope in history. Although it's interesting that today the church is attempting to canonize him and make him a saint. I'm, I'm not sure how they're working that out, but they're working it out. So He wrote to Queen Victoria, and Queen Victoria wrote him back. And she said, well, you're so Christ-like. Your ideas are are so peacemaking. Peace you couldn't possibly do any harm to anyone. I wish you well. She had the longest reign up until today. Queen Elizabeth II has outlived her, but she had, at that time, the longest reign of any crowned head in history. Her children peopled the thrones of Europe, children and grandchildren. And, of course, the British throne is the only one left still extant today. And, and oh, he also, he also congratulated her for having ended the slave trade. She had a very good experience with Baha'u'llah. He wrote also to the United States and to the, to the Americas, not just the United States, which at that time pretty much consisted of the United States and Canada together. You see, the Civil War had just ended when he wrote. It ended in 1865. He wrote in 1868. I think he was, he was addressing... The idea that there were 300 million black people who had just been released from slavery and they needed to be taken care of. And of course, they were not taken care of at all. They were, they were less free than, than abandoned, actually. And the, and the result has been a very long and difficult adjustment for them and for the rest of the country. And the difficulties with racism that we face today in this country are, are traceable directly to our failure to do what should have been done, should have been done with and for these people following emancipation, and it wasn't done. And so we're in this uncomfortable situation we find ourselves in today. Alexander II was told that he should he should do something about seeing that his people had 
have better representation and not be so authoritative. He failed to do it. I think he, he wanted to, in some ways he wanted to. He did free the serfs. He set them free, and I think that was that was a point of pride in his life. He was happy that he was able to do that. He'd wanted to since he was a young boy, but in the end, he couldn't give up his autocratic authority. He was a troubled man. He had he was divided in two. There was a, a sweet and gentle and uh, a sensitive man in Alexander, but there was also the autocrat that his father had taught him to be, and he. He couldn't integrate these two parts of himself. He worked at it all his life and was never able to do it. And in the end, he was shot. He had the papers for the parliament that the people wanted in his pocket, in his coat when he was shot. His son and heir put that into practice and created a what was called a Duma, which is a Russian word for parliament or a congress. It was never very useful. And the Russians still today are not much better off. The common people are not much better off than they were under serfdom because they've had one autocratic form of rule after another and um, still do not have a, a government that functions in, in their best interests. The upshot of the letters to the king were that these problems were there. They'd been come a long time building they were probably inevitable that they should end up the way they did with the, with all of the kings losing their kingdoms except England because the the age of autocracy was over. It had died. Its usefulness had died. But had they followed Baha'u'llah's advice, there was a possibility that this could have all been avoided. In fact, it, it is a certainty that it could have been avoided had they followed his advice. They did not do it. And so we are in the mess we are in today. It's a sad history, but it's a true history, and, and that's that's where we are. In the meantime, all of this is, is woven through the adventures of a woman who was born in Iran in the days when, when the faith, the Baha'i faith was just being born, and she lived through all of it. This part is fiction, but the history is, is woven in among her adventures and she ends up going to Russia to live and then to Paris to live and ends her life in, in Paris. She lives 100 years and she's telling this story, reminiscing this story on her the evening of her 100th birthday. I'm speaking with Carol Handy, published poet and author, and she served as writer-editor for the Baha'i International News Service from 1989 to 1990. And we were just talking about her latest historical novel called Journey of Sorrow, Journey of Hope, which the central figure is a Persian woman who travels through Persia, Russia, and Paris at the time when Baha'u'llah had issued his letters to the kings and rulers of Europe. And she, in this, this novel, tr describes her journey and her life for a hundred years, which takes her into the early 20th century and the results of the world as a result of kings and rulers ignoring the message of Baha'u'llah. Carol, do you have an excerpt you'd like to read from Journey of Sorrow, Journey of Hope? I can. Let me see. Let me see. Would you suggest something about her story or something more more of the history? 
her story. Okay. All right, here we go. She had three children. She was married to an older man, and her husband died. Her baby daughter died. Her son was killed when he was about 17 or 18. And so she had just the one daughter left who has, has become her only companion. They have lived now for a number of years as servant women to a wealthy family in Tehran who were followers of the Bab. The Bab was a herald, as I said earlier, I think the John the Baptist figure who was announcing the coming of Baha'u'llah. She had been brought up as a Muslim and uh, was not active as a Muslim, but was superstitious about any other method of, of belief and so wondered what was going on with this family. On this particular day, the daughter of the family is to be married to a young Russian man and leave for Russia the next day. This means that she is now losing her last child, her, her only living relative, and she's very, very unhappy about this. She writes, Before you listen to Carol's reading of her excerpt, I think it's helpful to understand that the protagonist is Shirin and her daughter is Khadija. It is her daughter, Khadija, that will travel with the new bride, Fatima, as a servant and thus being separated from our heroine. The groom in the story is Count Nicholas, who is Russian, and as I said, the bride is Fatima. Fatima's father is Mirza Abbas. The novel is written in the first person by the protagonist, Shirin. I slept fitfully, but I slept. However, before the sun had risen, I felt Fatima shaking my shoulder. Wake up, Shirin, wake up. You too, Khadija, awaken. I've much to tell you, and you must get your day started, but there's a great deal to do. She told us that, that she and Lady Shida and Mirza Abbas, along with Mirza Majid and Count Nicholas, had sat late into the night making plans. If, as we had heard the night before during the account of Tahir's death, it was true that the order had gone out that every Babi must die, then Mirza Abbas and his eldest daughter at least, Mirza Abbas and his family were all in immediate danger. Therefore, in order to save the life of the eldest daughter, at least, the preparations for her departure would be made this very day. The wedding held quickly this evening, and the first thing tomorrow morning, she and Count Nicholas and their party would depart for Russia. The wedding, which was not to have taken place for many weeks yet, would now be over by tonight. And my daughter would be among that fleeing retinue and would leave me tomorrow morning. Twenty-four hours more, and all that was left in my family would be gone. I faced the rising sun, wanting only to die. Somehow I got through the day. Fatima and I and several others managed to accomplish in the morning and an afternoon what have normally have taken us days. I don't know how we did it except the frantic need to you save the life of Shahin drove us to our tasks. Kadish and I worked alongside others much of the time, mending and brushing, sorting and packing. I thank God for all there was to do, for had I had the time to reflect on what we were preparing for and how rapidly the hours were passing, I believe I could not have borne it. We women awaited the women's quarters for the ceremony among the men, after which Count Nicholas would come in the time-honored tradition to fetch his bride from us and call out in the chorus of celebratory chant. After the ceremony, an evening of enjoyment was planned, even though it was to be considerably 
subdued compared to the original plans now discarded. Some guests were expected, so I was not surprised to hear the sounds of horses and men's voices approaching the house just as the faint strains sounded from the chant from the Baruni as Mirza Majid chanted the last prayer. But Mirza Abbas suddenly appeared outside the Biruni door. His head came sharply to attention and he frowned. In moments then I realized that these were not guests. An armed horseman led by a mullah on horseback broke through the gates of the estate screaming, death to the Babi dogs, death to the infidels, enemies of Islam. In moments all was madness. Count Nicholas and Prince Michael hurriedly unsheathed their swords and evading the Arjuna seized the bride by the arms and removed her from sight. I ran toward our room, dragging Khadija behind me and all around with the shouts of men and the screams of women. Children cried, the sounds of horses' hooves pounding across the yard. Soon the eerie orange of flames rose in the early dark of the summer night and Khadija and I alternately ran and then stopped and stood clutching each other only to start running again. And then suddenly I heard a man's voice and she was yanked from my grasp. I turned and screamed Khadija into the dark, but she had disappeared. All around the fires roared. The horses and riders were everywhere, and dark figures ran from first this way and then that. It was madness, and I, as mad as the next, found myself running first in one direction and then in the other. I heard my own voice moaning aloud, God, oh, Allah the merciful, oh, Khadija, help me. The horsemen wheeled and pranced about, helpless over the terrible rage of a fat and toothless woman. Then suddenly I heard myself cry, Fatima, behind you, as a fourth horseman galloped up from the, the rear and taking aim as he rode, fired his rifle into her fleshy back. Even as she fell, the four galloped away across the gate and the attack was over. The sudden quiet broke now only by the moans of a dying few and the crackling flames. I rushed out to where she lay on the bloody ground. Throwing myself down beside her, I took her face in my hands. Oh, two tea, I wept, forgetting that we had never called her that in her presence. But she opened her eyes and looked up at me. I will get help, I said. We will get you to safety. No, she said. Stay with me. I have only a moment more. Tell Mirza Abbas for me. But I shook my head, and she understood. Kanum, Kanum too, I said. Ah, they've succeeded then. They will kill us all if they can. They will kill us all if they can. Wow, that's very intense. So I'm speaking with Carol Handy, published poet and author who served as writer-editor for the Baha'i International News Service from 1989 to 1990. She just read an excerpt from her historical novel called Journey of Sorrow, Journey of Hope, which was a very intense excerpt. Carol, thank you so much for sharing that. Carol suggested reading a shorter excerpt which I readily agreed. This excerpt describes the escape of Count Nicholas with Shirin and her daughter Khadija after Mirza Abbas's family was slaughtered for being Babis. Carol provides some background before reading the excerpt. Shirin and her daughter have been living with, with a wealthy family and acting as servants for them for a number of years. And now they are hurriedly leaving home because the, the place had been invaded by Muslim fanatics who killed the family and most of the people who lived there. Somehow she and, she and her daughter were rescued by the Russian man the daughter was to marry, and they managed to escape at the end of the attack and are now, are now leaving the estate and moving 
beginning their journey to Russia, which will change her whole life and her daughter's. It begins this way. Long after the caravan, carrying Count Nicholas's party, had wound its way through the foothills behind Tehran. A red glow from the dying fires in Mirza Bas's estate glowed like a beacon from below. When the hills suddenly became steeper and we knew the journey had begun in earnest, the trailmaster called a halt to allow the animals a few minutes rest and to tell us for the next two hours until we reached the summit of the edge we would be required to walk. Shaheen, Khadija, and I stood together in the cool night air looking back down the long way we had come. The red glow was hidden now in the folds of the hills, the only sign of the recent tragedy, a column of dark space in the sky where smoke still rising from the embers blotted out the stars that otherwise shone with such lively brilliance in the vast and unfeeling night. Shaheen was weeping her face twisted with sorrow. Khadija stood with her arm around her, weeping also. I did not weep. My losses in the past had taught me that grief in one form or another is always with us, and that for me, the time for weeping is when I'm alone and at leisure, although when that would be in a traveling com community, I had no way of knowing. Then, to the unexpected good fortune of finding myself a part of the journeying party and the prospect of being with my daughter after all, whom I thought I had lost forever, tempered the shock of this horrendous night. The Count walked back to the Hauda to see if we were all right, and taking Shaheen aside, whispered words of comfort and love, attempting to ease her burden as much as he could. The night was chilly in these heights, and Khadija and I stood shivering, but relieved to be out of the, the lurching Hauda for a while and on our feet. I could not help but remember that other journey so many years ago that had brought me to Tehran to become the bride of Ali Taki, and then following his death in Hussein's, another with Khadija that had brought me to the estate of Mirza Abbas and all those I had come to love as though they were family. Sheda Khanum, a number of the women, Mirza Abbas himself, our gracious rescuer, and my beloved Fatima, our T2. My sorrows tonight were, though no greater than those earlier ones, multiple and fresh. And I thought, it seems as though I'm always fleeing sorrow. And yet each time the journeys had led from sorrow through fear to a greater and fuller life, albeit within my small orbit. So beneath the grief that had not yet even taken full hold of my spirit, I felt the slightest stirring of anticipation. What lies ahead beyond these hills, I thought. Suddenly, I remembered Tahereh in my dream of her prophecy for me. You'll make three long and sorrowful journeys, Shirin, and then your soul will find its home. Those first journeys could not have counted because they took place before she knew me, nor could they be cruelly called long. So this undoubtedly was the first of the three. But I don't want them, I thought. Enough of sorrowful journeys, not realizing I had said enough aloud. Enough of what, Mama? Khadija asked me. I was just thinking aloud. I've had enough of tragedy this night to last a lifetime. But we are together, my darling. We are alive and together. We embraced each other then tightly in the cold mountain air. And, she said, the ring of untried youth in her voice, we are going to live in St. Petersburg in Russia. I'm speaking with Carol Handy published poet and author, and she served as writer-editor for the Baha'i International News Service from 1989 to 1990. Carol, you're a published poet. What works of poetry have you published? 
it's very difficult to get published poetry published you know i had one poem published in a magazine oh gosh i don't know a long time ago another one won a little award in a small contest and the prize was getting it published in a book full of other winners <laughs> i've put together a group that i would like to publish at some point I do have a series of five long narrative poems that I wrote about the life of Christ back many years ago, back in the early 60s. And that has been published and is on the market now. They're poems about people who were present at seminal moments in Jesus' life, one at his birth, one at his trial, one at his capture, one following his crucifixion. And then there is finally his own soliloquy when he is undergoing the temptations. It's called Prayers from the Land of the Living, which is based on, on a scriptural reference. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so these are prayers put together or supposedly said by people who saw, I saw a moment in Jesus' life take place and some of them recognized who he was and others saw only a human being having a having an experience and so there are different there are different reactions from these people it's worked out well for lenten programs and it's had a lot of views people have liked it so now it's it's going to be for sale carol is there a poem you'd like to share with us this is called Sadie's Feast. In the early days of the Baha'i faith in, in the United States, we would get together for our meetings. We would have our worship meetings in people's homes. And in fact, we still do pretty much because we were so, such small groups. So there were many places at that time in the United States where a black person was not welcome in a white person's home. They could enter, but only through the back door because most of them worked as domestics. The man who is, who was for a number of years recently the secretary of the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States, which is probably the most prestigious position for a Baha'i in this country. And it's an elected position. It's an elected position. Was the grandson of a woman about whom I have written this poem. And this would have been back in the late 20s, the early 30s, when this took place. The secretary was speaking one day at, at a meeting and he, he made this comment. He said, in a day when black people could not enter white homes through the front door, my grandmother knew that by going through the back door for Baha'u'llah, she would help to open the front doors for everyone. And I was moved by that comment. And so I wrote the following poem. I mean, first of all, you, you need to understand that it wasn't the Baha'is who didn't want her to come in the front door. It was the rest of the world. And had, she, had we allowed her to come in the front door, she would have had a visit from the Ku Klux Klan the next day or other all kinds of unhappy things could have resulted from that and so we lived with the situation as it was at the time and this is called Sadie's Feast. The feast is the worship service for the Baha'is. 
while others move through welcoming arch into the embrace of softly lit and fragrant foyer. She makes her way between marigolds and board fence, past garbage can and coal chute along a narrow path to the backyard. Up familiar steps, sensible black shoes thump on plank stoop. With warning finger against her lips, she eyes her starched brood and scrubbed and beribboned baby Marilyn held firmly by the hand, Sadie Ellis goes to feast. For the seventh day this week, she enters a white lady's kitchen, neat now for the celebration, tea things prepared and covered. She will not do dishes here tonight. Seated in the parlor among the friends, she hears the prayers, the word, the latest letter from the guardian. Flowers on her black straw hat bob as she bows her head and not to offend murmurs beneath her breaths fervent amens. She sings hymns, partakes from her hostess spice cake, sips tea and joins the small talk in this haven of Baha'i house and sacred hour and departs as she arrived, leaving behind a faint sweet perfume of hair pomade and powder gathered now in the nostrils of a smiling concourse among the fragrances of holiness. For the last hour, I've been speaking with Carol Handy published poet and author who served as the writer and editor for the Baha'i International News Service from 1989 to 1990, and she just shared a poem that she had written. Carol, I want to thank you so much for taking this hour to share your work with us. You're more than welcome. I'm honored to do so. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Carol Handy, published poet and author. I post links to our works on abahaiperspective.com, where you can hear this interview and other interviews. You can also listen to Carol's interview on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride. Then my spirit arises on earth. For the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world. From age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, 
there shall be no end, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. of the religion of the Arabian and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion. A descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet. shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom in conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying,
And in the Holy Qur'an, God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp. The lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were, a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. Light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light, and of all things God is knowing. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.